uh, use those weeks to uh, take a look at a few of uh, selected psalms. And so uh, last week was Psalm 110 and the the rule and reign of Christ as we were sort of leading up to uh, Election Day. Um, This one really is not intended to connect to Election Day at all, but um, uh, it's a a psalm we've sung uh, several times. I came really close to singing it again, but we've done it a lot recently, and so I I chose not to do it yet once more. Um, But it's uh, as a hymn, as a psalm, as as a song, um, the Indelible Grace version is, is usually the one we've done. Um, I love singing it. I love the, the, the content of the psalm. So uh, it seemed an appropriate psalm for us. So Psalm 51, and while you're turning there, I should have said this already, uh, I'm gonna, I want you to stick a finger in 2 Samuel 12, uh, because in a, in a few minutes I'm going to make you flip back there, and it might be easier if you've already got a finger or a bulletin or a torn off corner or something uh, stuck there. Um, Psalm 51, uh, if you are able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. uh, Use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. 
You know, if you think about it, we live, um, we live lives that ask us to prove our worth. Everywhere you turn, you're being evaluated by how you prove yourself at work. If you don't do well, if you don't do the stuff you're supposed to do, uh, you'll get let go. If you don't make money for the company, you won't be around very long. If you uh, aren't doing the things you're supposed to do. If you're going to run for office, you spend your campaign season um, proving to people, claiming and proving to people that you're the best candidate. Why? Well, it's based on these things and this performance and the things that I promise to offer you. If you're going to college and you want to be in a fraternity or sorority, you spend rush week proving to everybody that you belong in their sorority and you do it with every sorority or fraternity you visit. We, everywhere we turn, so much, even in our marriages, we find moments of, we have struggles of, I'm, I'm not proving myself. I'm not earning his, her favor. Our lives are marked by having to constantly prove yourself, having to constantly earn, uh, perform, and gain the, the trust and confidence of the people around you. And the danger is that we let that same mentality creep into our relationship with God. And we do this we, we, we know better. We don't do this. At least we say we don't do this. And then we do this. We do things like, at least if I don't expose the guilt and shame and rottenness within, and I whitewash the outside and let everyone else around me think everything's right, then that kind of means God thinks the same way of me. If I can hide my sin, then it's really not that big a deal. We do it in conversations with each other, right? We, we, we sin against someone and then we respond with, my bad, my fault, or worse, it's no big deal. We have this notion that God grades on a curve and as long as I'm better than everyone else around me, as long as I'm better than those people out there, and that's kind of the language we use, then we're fine. Now, we know better. We, that's the problem, right? The problem is we know better. Biblically, theologically, we know that's not true. But then we spend, spin our wheels God, why are you doing this? Why is life difficult? I mean, I had my quiet time this morning. Why is this week going so poorly? I went to church on Sunday. I go to church more often than I don't. Those are our, our claims of merit, uh, even inside the church. King David knew better. King David understood that he had no claims to righteousness. He understood that, that nobody, no matter who we are, from, from prince to pauper, 
none of us has a claim on merit, on righteousness, on holiness before God. And this psalm shows us that reality. David's experience really isn't different from ours. First, let me remind you of the occasion for David's repentance. I mentioned this last week and then just a few minutes ago when I read the psalm, I actually read what in our English Bibles we think of as a heading. That's actually verse 1. So the the part to the choir master, a psalm of David, in the Hebrew Old Testament, that's verse 1. There are uh, actually like 21 verses in uh, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament because the first two verses are in, you know, we've called them a heading. And that heading reminds us of an event, uh, of events in David's life in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And of David's need for repentance. And we're told that David writes this psalm as a result of being confronted by Nathan the prophet. See, what had happened, I've got a friend I don't see as much anymore. Um, he's the father of uh, one of John's classmates, also played soccer at Athens High School. He and I are in a fantasy soccer Premier League thing together, but we don't see each other a whole lot. Um, and he used to say, every time Athens scored, I mean, every time, every, it wasn't that many, but every single time Athens scored, he always said, one begets two. With this hopeful, wishful, you know, it's this mantra that's just a truism out there. And, and you get one and two kind of follows right behind it. It was his notion that, that once you kind of got one goal, it, it sort of led to a second one. That might describe our sinfulness. We sin and frequently one begets two. Frequently one leads to another. Because then once we tell the lie, we have to remember the lie and tell others to make sure we shore up the walls of the first lie we told. Think of all the times that one begets two. We've got to sort of maintain this persona. I've, I've told a story in one context. I've kind of said it a little differently in a different one, which means I've got to keep those people apart. Or I, in this, I've got to remember the part to play when I'm around this group of people. Or remember how I told the story when I'm around that group of people. It's easy enough when you steal something to then lie about having stolen something and so you lie to cover up the fact that you've stolen. That's the background. That's David in, in 2 Samuel 11. David saw Bathsheba. She's beautiful. He, she, and, and married and not to David. And then he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And so then he has to figure out a way to cover up that sin. And so he sends for her husband to come home from the war. 
well, he'll go and stay at home and he'll have a few days off and then all will be well, except that her husband was more upright than that. And when that didn't work, he had to scheme another way to cover up his sin. And so he made sure that her husband, Uriah, ended up at the very front lines of the most dangerous parts of the war. And that they would then retreat and leave him there and ensure that he was killed. Lust, adultery, lying, murder, one beget another in order to cover up the previous ones. That was the, the setting, that's the background behind Nathan the prophet going to David in Psalm 51 in our heading, but what is verse 1. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I just want you to, to read the first seven verses of this chapter where Nathan actually comes in and rebukes uh, David. 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The righteous anger or the self-righteous anger rising up inside of David. You can almost see his neck face turning red as he responded. And then... Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the one guilty of this act. And it's in the context of 2 Samuel 12 that David writes this, this psalm of repentance. That's the occasion for David's repentance. You know, the reality is, and we don't like this idea, and, and we want it, but we don't want it. We need Nathans in our lives. We need people who can come alongside of us and point out sin issues. Not because they get to beat you down. Not because they get to make you feel bad about you. Not because they then get to feel righteous. But to help us grow in holiness. To help us root out sin and evil and wickedness from our own hearts and lives. We need 
And it may be sin issues we don't even recognize. It's entirely possible. David obviously knew what he had done. But it's entirely possible that, that over the course of, of sinning and covering that up with sin and you know, I mean, it would have taken some time. It's entirely possible that by this time, David was so callous to his, to his guilt, he didn't recognize himself when David gave him this parable of uh, the, the rich man and the poor man. We may be oblivious to our sin, but we, we need people in our lives who want our holiness, who want our growth in grace, and will point out sin, uh, issues of sin in our lives. And so David repents. Uh, on the occasion is, Nathan comes and, and calls him out on his sin, and David uh, responds with repentance. We see the occasion for repentance. We also see the need for repentance. You know, there's obviously a difference between an occasion and a need. It's one thing to have the opportunity to repent. It's another thing to have a reason to repent and have guilt and shame and, and sin for which uh, we must uh, confess and turn from. Notice David doesn't repent um, because he got caught. David doesn't repent of causing a headache for Nathan. David doesn't repent of causing problems for even Bathsheba. He repents not because he got caught. You know, that, that's usually our repentance, right? Our repentance usually sounds a lot like, well, I just had a lapse in judgment or um, not I'm sorry for sinning against you, but I'm sorry for hurting your feelings or I'm sorry for um, you know, we, we, any number of things other than just calling out our sin directly. David's not sad or sorrowful because he got caught. He's sad or sorrowful because he's guilty. Look at verse three and four. Look at the words he uses. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. Have you ever read that and then thought to yourself, wonder how Bathsheba would have read that verse. Think of Bathsheba for a second. Think of all the things that David has taken from her. The child conceived dies later in Second uh, Samuel 12 or 13. That child dies. I mean, think of all the things that David has taken from Bathsheba. And David says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Does that mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba? Well, no, it means he recognizes what sin actually is. He's missed the mark. He's, he's missed that standard of holiness and righteousness that God demands of His people. The word is actually an archery term. When I shoot a bow, um, I remember being at camp 
years ago I've used this illustration and actually trying to shoot an arrow at a target. And I remember one time actually letting go and watching as the arrow spun around on the bow. I could aim high, I could aim low, that little circle in the middle I couldn't hit. That's where the word sin comes from. Missing the mark, not hitting the the center of the circle, the, the target that we're supposed to hit. And yes, even sin against other people is still a violation of God's will, of God's law. And David recognizes his guilt, not even, not just before other people, but before God in heaven. He's committed cosmic treason. I love, you hear, you hear it a lot. I know you get tired of me. I love that phrase because it's exactly what it is. The king of the universe sits on his throne, ruling and reigning over heaven and earth and everyone and everything in it, And we look at him and say, not me. I'll be in charge. I will not subject myself to you. That sin, it's an act of cosmic treason. And David recognizes he's guilty before God. He understood the depth of his sin. He understood the real offense in his disobedience. But his sin isn't merely external. His problem isn't merely external. It's also inside of himself. Look at verses 5 and 6. was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that says David's mother was guilty of I don't know, some sexual sin when David was conceived? There's no evidence of that. This isn't a comment about what David's mom was doing when he was conceived. It's a comment about his own inward sinfulness. You and I are born sinners. You and I have, have inherited from Adam, from our first father, a Sin nature. It's called original sin. Uh, That sin nature that we've inherited from our ancestor Adam. To use the language of the the shorter catechism, uh, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We are sinners and, and born in Sin. We come into the world as sinful people. You know, you're not going to hear a lot of that during campaign cycles. You're not going to hear it doesn't it doesn't you're not going to gain a lot of votes. If you campaign on, I believe man is inherently sinful. All the story. All the campaigning, all the hope, I believe that that man is basically good and that at our heart you mean well and you're just the product of your culture. You're just the product of your upbringing. You're just the product of that event that happened to you back when you were four. And it's really not your fault. You're a good person. 
That's not what the Bible says. But you hear it in churches too, right? Kids are born and they're not born sinners. And then all of a sudden, at some age of accountability, whatever that is, which I can't find anywhere in the Bible, suddenly they become guilty of their sin and they need to be to repent and, and believe. It's just true, but there's this notion that children are innocent up to some certain age. The Bible says we are conceived, we're born in sin. Do you recognize your sin? Do you, do, you, do you recognize your sin for what it is? Not just a mistake, not just a lapse in judgment, but a violation of God's holy will. See, the, the danger isn't that we might make someone unhappy with us. The danger isn't just that we might disappoint someone. The danger isn't just that, that we make people around us frustrated or disappointed. The danger is verse 4. David expects judgment. And God in His holiness and His righteousness is right to pass judgment on our guilt. You would be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment if you found me guilty, he says and implies. He's, he understands that he's committing cosmic treason. We see the occasion for his repentance, the need for his repentance. I want you to notice also the appeal of his repentance. Not, the, not, not what's appealing to us, but the appeal he makes in his repenting. What hope do we have? What, to what will you appeal when you repent of your sin? David, verses 7 to 9, appeals to God's grace promised in God's word. Purge me with hyssop. With hyssop. He, he looks back to Leviticus 14. You know Leviticus 14. You probably have... Leviticus 14 memorized. I mean, don't we all have Leviticus 14 sort of tucked away in our memory? He knew biblical language enough that when he needed to repent, he could grab Leviticus 14. It's a, it's a chapter on leprosy and being cleansed from leprosy. And in that chapter, a hyssop branch is dipped in the blood of a dead bird and sprinkled on the bird that you're going to let go and sprinkled on the leper and you're made clean. David appeals to the language of Scripture where God is offering forgiveness and cleansing based on the blood of an offered sacrifice in your place. In fact, the, the language of, of purging is essentially he's asking to be unsinned. I have sinned. Now, God, would you unsin me? Would you purge me of this guilt? Would you remove this guilt and shame from me? Would you unsin me? It's like unsweet tea. There's no such thing. Right? You don't add sweetness and then take the sweetness out. That would be the word unsweet. 
right? You don't do that. You either leave it alone and it's not sweetened, but you don't unsweeten it. You don't add sweet and then take it. That's what David's asking for. I am guilty of sin. Now, would you take that sin out of me? Would you unsin me? Would you purge me of this guilt and shame? Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. But his hope, his appeal, is to God's own promises. God, you've commanded us through Moses in your word, this is how to deal with sin. This is how to deal with leprosy. This is how to deal with uncleanness. This is how to deal with our need for cleansing. And, and so he merely quotes God's word back to him. He alludes to God's own promises and uses God's words as a foundation for his forgiveness. And notice this forgiveness requires bloodshed. Something, someone has to die. Blood has to be shed so that you can then be sprinkled by the blood of this sacrificed animal. Uh, this hyssop has been dipped into, sprinkled onto you so that you might be cleansed, but might be made whole. David may have a sense he's pointing to the, to the Messiah. He may have a sense that, that, that this is a reference to the one who will come, who will bleed and suffer and die on our behalf. Certainly we know that. We read this psalm in light of the New Testament and go, but it's no longer the bird, David. It's your son, your greater son, Jesus. It's his blood, Dip the hyssop branch in His blood. Sprinkle that on us and we are made clean. It's not the blood of an animal, but the blood of Jesus Christ by which you and I are unsinned. But notice, just as His sin wasn't merely external, His forgiveness isn't merely external. Look at verses 10 to 12. David longs uh, not just for an external declaration of his righteousness, but he longs for his own spiritual renewal. He longs to grow in grace. He longs, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence. And that's his fear. Now you and I might think, but hold on, David, we have... We have John. We have John 14, 15, 16, and 17. We have these promises that, that if, if we are in Christ's hands, nothing, no one can snatch us out of it. We have these promises that once we receive God's Holy Spirit, He, he, he won't leave. But who was David's predecessor? Who was king before David? And what happened to Saul? The Spirit of the Lord departed from him. David sees that as his greatest danger. His greatest fear. Lord, I have violated your commands. I have sinned against you. Do not leave me. Do not depart from me. 
aware are we that sin carries a relational aspect to it? Do we approach our relationship with God as though it's merely a legal contract, merely a legal standing? I've sinned. I'm forgiven in Christ. It's dealt with. On I move. David sees the danger. Not only have I violated your law, but I've built a wall between us. And I want that wall gone. I want that wall destroyed. I don't want any separation, any barrier between himself and God. When we, when we sin, when we violate his standards, we're literally pushing him to the periphery of our lives. Sin is not just legal, it is relational. And David understood that his relationship with God was most important. He didn't want his disobedience, his self-worship to permanently damage and his relationship with God, permanently separate him from his creator. David appeals to God's grace promised in God's word on account of a blood sacrifice. That's our model. When you repent of sin, appeal to God's grace, grounded in His Word, according on account of a blood sacrifice. Not an animal, not a goat, not a bird, but the sacrifice of Christ. Lastly, just real quick, I want you to look at the result of forgiveness. In verses 13 to, to 17, we find that his relationship with, is restored and David longs to worship God. You know, it's, it's tempting for us to think that sin disqualifies us from usefulness in God's kingdom. I, I, I can't, I mean, I, who am I? I mean, God, you don't, I mean, you don't know what I've done. God knows what I've done. You don't know, and let's, we're going to keep it that way, because sin just disqualifies people from usefulness in God's kingdom. Okay, it may disqualify you from offices. It may disqualify you from, from certain aspects of, of function within the local church. But sin doesn't disqualify you from usefulness in His kingdom. Notice the way David then, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with, it, with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Open my lips, verse 15, and my mouth will declare your praise. David understood that this restoration, that his forgiveness and his restoration meant he would then be useful in the kingdom. And here we are thousands of years later reading his repentance as a model for our own. Not only will he teach, but he's also worshiping God again. A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Praise belongs to God and to God alone for his legal declaration of not guilty and the restoration of this relationship. As if the application isn't painfully clear to us. 
we all need forgiveness. We're all guilty of cosmic treason. We're all in danger of one begetting more. We're all in danger of a severed, of a suffering, of a calloused relationship with our God. We're all, we all deserve the wrath and curse of God because of our sin. However, there's forgiveness found in Christ and Him alone. If you're here this morning and thinking to yourself, you know, I'm really not that bad. I'm better than most. And I'm pretty sure that when it's all said and done, all my good deeds will outweigh all my bad deeds and God's going to grade on a curve and everything's going to be okay. This passage says that is not your hope. Your hope should be in Christ and Him alone. This passage says repent of your sin and you will certainly find forgiveness in Christ. And it says to you, believer... Be comforted and and encouraged. You are far more guilty than you've ever thought you are. Which means that in Christ, you're far more forgiven than you've ever realized. And we are none of us worthy of that forgiveness. It's all of God's grace on account of His Son, Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate you from the love of your heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is sufficient grace for sinful people. We cannot outsin your grace. We thank you that there is grace sufficient to forgive us. That because of what Christ has done for us in His active obedience, His righteousness in His earthly life has earned all righteousness for us guilty people. That His blood shed on the cross, that literally you dip that hyssop in His blood and sprinkle it on us and you make us clean. And so we pray that you would pour out your grace on us. Not just to forgive us declaratively and legally, but that you would restore our relationship with you. And we pray that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation. Grow us in grace that we might then be useful in your kingdom and praise and honor and glorify you alone for our salvation. We pray all of this in the name of the matchless name of Christ. Amen.